Today, I want to tell you about a case that would be easy to sensationalize. It involves spies, secret missions, stolen artifacts, and exotic destinations. But I'm telling you about it for a different reason. To remind you of something. When we talk about people who have disappeared, past the headlines and the conspiracy theories, the noise and the intrigue are the lives of real people. And the full story of their lives is about so much more than their absence. For the past few years, Dr. Ling has been spending Easter in the Malaysian highlands south of Thailand, an annual vacation from his home in chaotic Singapore. He and his wife meet up with two of their closest friends from Bangkok, Mrs. Manskow and Jim Thompson. This year is no different. The group spends the morning at church and the Easter Sunday picnic that follows. Then they all pile into a car to honor another time-honored tradition, an afternoon nap at the bungalow. By 3 p.m., Dr. Ling is stretched out in his bed, Mrs. Ling beside him. As he drifts off to sleep, he hears crunching on the gravel outside his window. It's Jim, going for a stroll through the jungle that surrounds the property. But when Dr. Ling wakes up about an hour and a half later, Jim's still gone. His cigarettes and house keys are on the table. So Ling figures he didn't go far. But night falls and there's still no sign of him. The search for Jim Thompson spans weeks his friends growing more anxious by the day. But not for the reason you'd think. See, Jim Thompson isn't your average 61-year-old. He's also a retired spy. And every time a search of the wilderness fails to produce clues about his disappearance, Jim's friends are forced to consider the possibility that Jim never made it to the jungle at all. The question is, was he kidnapped? Or was he extracted to reinvent himself in parts unknown? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet Jim Thompson, American spy turned silk mogul who disappeared in the Malaysian wilderness. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever heard of the clothing label Jim Thompson? The brand specializes in vacation apparel. You can buy their brightly colored linen dresses and silk scarves for a couple hundred dollars a piece, all handmade in Thailand. The label evolved out of the Thai Silk Company. It's a little obscure now, but back in the day, it was the largest silk manufacturer in the world and single-handedly saved the Thai silk industry. If you ever get the chance to go to Bangkok, you can tour the former residence of Jim Thompson himself. Jim lived in the home from 1959 till 1967, when an afternoon hike went terribly wrong. But I'll start at the beginning. Jim grows up in Delaware at the turn of the 20th century. He's born into wealth and moves through affluent circles networking with his parents' friends during parties and those elaborate weekend hunting trips you see in movies. His good grades and influential parents make him a shoo-in for the Ivy League. He attends Princeton, followed by the architecture program at the University of Pennsylvania. He doesn't finish the program, but he finds work at an architecture firm in New York City, likely through a family friend. Jim spends his late 20s designing residential homes, he has the world at his fingertips. He can coast through life if he wants to. Instead, around 1938 or 39, he takes the qualifying exam to become a licensed architect. But he fails, then fails again and again, which is devastating. He's loved design since he was a kid. And now he finds out that without a bit of nepotism, he might not have what it takes to see his vision through. After he fails the exam for a third time, he appeals to the board, asking, or rather pleading, that they reconsider his test results. They refuse. To Jim's credit, he bounces back fairly quickly. In 1940, at the age of 34, he bucks the traditional rich kid narrative and joins the Delaware National Guard. It's clear Jim wants to carve his own path. And he does. In fact, Jim's entire life is about to take a sharp turn. For one thing, the U.S. enters World War II in December 1941. Jim wants to serve, but the National Guard doesn't see much action, especially in North Carolina where Jim's stationed. Luckily, he meets a West Point graduate named Captain Edwin Black, who's in the newly formed Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner to the CIA. Black sees that Jim is smart and well-tempered and encourages him to ask for a transfer to the OSS. It's also through Captain Black that Jim meets his future wife, Patricia. Like Jim, she comes from money, but she isn't interested in a high society kind of life. She craves adventure. She's artistic and smart with a refreshing point of view. It's like she sees the world through a kaleidoscope. They marry in 1942, but while they're madly in love, the honeymoon is short-lived. Only six months after they're married, Jim graduates spy school and is shipped to North Africa. 
1943, the Allied forces were driving the Nazis out of the region. Jim spends the next two years traveling around the world working as a spy. Then he flies into the Eastern Theater in 1945 and is assigned to the American contingent preparing to drive the Japanese out of Thailand. But before they can roll the tanks in, they learn that the war's over. Across the world, people dance in the streets, and Bangkok is no exception. After enduring years of air raids and political tension, life returns to this beautiful, resilient city. A city which captivates Jim. He's enchanted by the culture steeped in tradition, the bold colors decorating every inch of the city, the history and architecture. Truthfully, Jim isn't looking forward to returning to Washington. His life there feels dull after spending three years at war. Outside of his wife, Pat, he's not sure what he's returning to. The OSS doesn't feel like his future. The longer he's in Bangkok, the more he searches for a reason to stay. Enter Thai silk. It's unlike any other fabric in the world. Thai silk is hand-woven with triangular threads that reflect light, so the garments seem to shimmer in the sun. It's also sturdy. Thai silk garments can retain their color and shape for well over a century. Jim buys tons of silk garments for Pat, thinking she'll appreciate the artistry that goes into every yard of fabric. But he has to wonder, why has he never heard of Thai silk before? After all, growing up, he had access to a top-of-the-line wardrobe. While at the time, Thailand's not as connected to the global economy, so everybody in the West is getting cheaper, factory-made silk from more accessible countries like China and Japan. By the time Jim lands in Bangkok, the Thai silk industry is basically dead, which strikes Jim as a real shame and gets his wheels turning. In 1946, Jim resigns from the OSS, then writes Pat to let her know that he'll soon be on his way home, but the visit will be a temporary one. He's just found his next business venture in beautiful, colorful Bangkok and assures her she's just going to love it. Then, Jim Thompson hires the first employee of his future company, a part-time plumber who agrees to weave some samples. In exchange, Jim not only pays him for the silk, but offers him shares in the company. Once he has several suitcases full of silk, Jim takes them to New York City. He calls in a few favors to make contacts in the fashion industry. And before he knows it, he's sitting in the office of Edna Woolman Chase, editor of Vogue. She takes one look at the materials and announces that Thai silk has arrived. She tells Jim to leave the fabric with her for a few weeks so she can shop it around. He agrees and at some point heads down to Washington to tie up a few loose ends with the CIA. It should be noted that after he resigns, a memo is sent around the agency stating that Jim Thompson is returning to Bangkok, but not as an agent. Beneath that paragraph is a line of text that's still redacted to this day, but we'll get to that. After resigning, Jim drives down to see Pat, but the reunion is an unhappy one. Pat asks for a divorce. Apparently, she's fallen in love with one of Jim's best friends. It's a crushing blow. But there's one silver lining. Their separation makes it easier for Jim to pick up and move to Thailand permanently, 
and as usual, he isn't down for long. Within a few weeks, he hears from Edna Chase. She's convinced Valentina, like the fashion designer Valentina, to buy a few yards of pale mauve-colored silk. But instead of using it for a client, Valentina designs a dress for herself and is photographed in it for Vogue. In 1947, that's about the biggest stamp of approval your business can get. Now, I know Jim reflects a certain stereotype, being a wealthy white man capitalizing on a culture that isn't his. But the way he builds his business is refreshingly ethical, starting with the way he finances it. He collects $25,000 from 36 shareholders, the majority of whom are Thai. To him, it's vital that the Thai silk company is just that, of Thailand. So even though he's founder and CEO of the company, it's controlled by Thai citizens. He also refuses to outsource labor to a sweatshop. Instead, he hires 200 local weavers, buys them everything they need, and allows them to work from home, which as many of us now know, is an ideal setup. As Jim's star rises, he does his best to remind the world that the Thai Silk Company is a team sport. He makes a point to name his Thai business partners in every interview he gives. So while it's not a perfect scenario, I respect how self-aware Jim Thompson is. His business ethics are decades ahead of their time. Anyway, from the moment the Thai Silk Company's incorporated in 1948, it's a booming success. Over the next few years, Jim becomes internationally famous, his name synonymous with silk. By the time 1954 rolls around, he's earned a vacation. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. By 1954, the Thai Silk Company is six years old and already an industry leader. Jim Thompson is internationally known as the Silk King, and all of Bangkok seems to love him. He's known for massive parties he throws on a weekly basis. In fact, he entertains at least a few people every night, from friends to celebrities to visiting dignitaries. 
it's not unusual for his home to be filled with hundreds of Bangkok's most interesting residents. He moves into a home he designed himself. It's actually made of six antique houses he had shipped in from all around Thailand. They're merged to create a massive compound, complete with a storefront and art gallery. All this to say, life's good. And Jim decides to keep the party rolling by planning a vacation with friends. They go on an expedition to the ruins of Sitep, an ancient city about 150 miles north of Bangkok. Jim loves these kinds of trips. There's something adventurous about exploring forgotten cities mostly reclaimed by the jungle. It takes hours to get there. As expected, the old city is deserted, except for a few locals who live nearby. These locals tell Jim and his friends that they should drive through to the other side of the jungle. They'll find a mountain with a bunch of caves full of ancient sculptures. Jim doubts it's true, probably just some old folklore. Still, it sounds like a fun side trip. The men decide to go. Unfortunately, Mother Nature has other plans. Just then, the skies open up, and a monsoon turns the dirt road through the jungle into a swamp. They have to abort the mission, so they promise to return after the rainy season. But as so often happens, they collectively forget about it. Then in 1960, Jim meets with his antique dealer. The dealer sells him three beautiful limestone heads said to be a thousand years old. Two of them are Buddha. The third head is of a deity, but the dealer isn't sure which one. Jim spends a small fortune on them. And the next year, the antique dealer brings him two more limestone heads. Jim learns they came from a cave in a mountain near Sitep. His jaw drops. Those locals from seven years back had been telling the truth. After that, Jim knows he has to get back. And he finally does so in 1962, a full eight years after his first visit. He and two friends make the long drive out to Sitep. When they finally arrive at the mountain, they're welcomed by a few locals who live in a nearby lumber camp. It turns out the cave with the statues is real. They even show Jim where it is. The trek up the mountain is arduous and winding, but what Jim and his friends find makes the whole trip worthwhile. Inside the cave are five headless stone Buddhas. Jim can't believe it. This has to be where some of the heads in his personal art gallery came from. Two in particular look like a match. Which could mean... Now excited, Jim asks if there are any other caves nearby. The hunters agree to take them, but for whatever reason, they lead them back to the lumber camp instead. Jim and his friends vow to return to look for the second cave, but it never happens. As far as I can tell, if a second cave exists, it's a well-kept secret. Although, if any of you decide to go looking, a lot of people are willing to bet that you'd find three headless statues inside. Anyway, Jim's elated, but his discovery comes with a very big problem. If his limestone heads came from this mountain, it means they were obtained illegally. He now has an obligation to turn them over to a museum. 
But if he does that, there will be questions about where they came from, which could land his dealer in prison. And Jim considers him a friend. Then again, if Jim doesn't report the sculptures, he'll be on the hook for stolen art. It's a lose-lose situation until Jim finds an interesting compromise. Instead of surrendering them to a museum, he opens his art gallery to the public. He even wills his gallery to a historical association called the Siam Society to ensure it will go to a museum after his death. It seems like the perfect solution, but Thailand's Department of Fine Arts isn't a fan of loopholes. The way their director general sees it, Jim looted the heads and is now flaunting them. He's profiting from Thai public property. So the director general sends the police to confiscate the heads and to embarrass Jim, he apparently has it done in broad daylight while guests are touring the gallery. If the director general wanted Jim to feel betrayed and shamed, he got his wish. After the seizure, Jim's angry for months. Out of spite, he draws up a new will in 1965, leaving everything, art museum included, to his nephew. Disenchanted with Bangkok, he also starts spending more time abroad. In 1965, he takes a leisurely trip to the States to visit his old friends and his silk vendors. He also starts spending Easter in the Malaysian highlands with his friend, Mrs. Manskow, and a couple called the Lings. On March 21st, 1967, Jim celebrates his 61st birthday by hosting a dinner party at his home. According to his friends, Jim talks about how Thailand isn't what it used to be. He'll probably leave anyway. Two days later, he packs his bags and heads out for the Cameron Highlands in Northern Malaysia for his annual Easter vacation. He and Mrs. Manskow set out from Bangkok, flying down to the Malaysian coast. From there, it's a steep, winding drive up to the Ling's vacation home called the Moonlight Bungalow. Jim's been here a few times already, so he knows the lay of the land. He and his friends enjoy a couple sunny days at the cottage, including a lovely Easter morning. They spend the early afternoon at a church picnic, watching kids hunt for Easter eggs. But because they're set to leave the next day, Mrs. Manskow suggests they head back to the cabin to pack before dinner. By 3 p.m., they're back at the Moonlight Bungalow. Mrs. Manskow is in her bedroom, neatly packing her belongings so she's ready for an early start. Around 4.30 p.m., she comes out of her room and wanders into the living room where Dr. Ling sits reading. They have a brief chat. Then Dr. Ling brings up the fact that he and Mrs. Ling heard Jim leave the bungalow for an afternoon stroll around 3. Mrs. Manskow walks out onto the veranda, where she sees Jim's suit jacket draped over a chair. His cigarettes and lighter are on the table, which strikes her as odd. Jim's a chain smoker. It's unusual for him to go on a two-hour walk without bringing a pack. Mrs. Manskow thinks maybe he snuck back in when Dr. Ling wasn't looking and has been napping all this time. But when she checks, his room's empty. His belongings are just as he left them, including pain medication for gallstones he'd been taking for the past few months. As the sun sets, worry sets in. There's no way Jim planned to be gone this long. 
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As night falls on Easter Sunday, 1967, Jim's friends and the local police begin their search. They comb the jungle until the early hours of the morning, then start up again at daybreak. By then, they're joined by more police and several members of the community. By day three, the entire town is in on the hunt. Even a few local soldiers lend a hand. The entire police force is on the job. It ends up being the biggest search and rescue effort in Malaysian history at the time. For comparison, most search parties only last a day. This one goes on for 11. But when the exhaustive search fails to find a body or even a clue, Jim's friends grow suspicious. They refuse to believe he's in the jungle. They would have found him. He would have left clues. And this is when they turn to conspiracy theories. They reason he's former OSS. Maybe he was kidnapped by some enemy of the state, a pawn in a game of international intrigue. But nobody can come up with a single political reason to kidnap a retired spy. That doesn't stop the media from blaming communists for the abduction, or the Japanese. After all, Jim knew the names of many agents in Saigon during World War II. It seems everyone has an explanation for Jim's disappearance. Kidnapping, murder, hit by a truck. Some suspect Charles Yost, the US ambassador to the UN. It's rumored that his wife, Irina, is one of Jim's lovers. The theory does nothing but potentially expose a painful affair. Then there's the director general of the Department of Fine Arts and Jim's nephew, heir to his vast fortune. At one point, the police send a memo to every known crime syndicate operating in Thailand, asking if they're responsible for the disappearance, but they say no. It's clear Jim's connections are throwing everything at the wall, but nothing sticks. Decades pass, and there's no trace of Jim Thompson. But his story remains captivating. In 2017, Lou Tolman, a researcher and expert on rescue missions, gives a presentation on Jim Thompson's case at the International Spy Museum in DC. He tackles the myriad conspiracy theories surrounding the case by explaining the logistics of kidnapping. If you were going to take someone, you wouldn't do it in a small town with one road, where everyone notices everything. It would be easier and safer to do it in Bangkok, where the fast pace of the city can mask a quick abduction. And besides, no ransom note is ever delivered, negating the whole point of a political kidnapping, which leaves two possibilities. 
Either Jim got lost in the jungle, or he purposefully disappeared. Remember that memo about Jim Thompson resigning from the OSS? And the line that was redacted? The first time that memo and a few supporting documents were shown in public was during Lou Tolman's presentation. It's now widely believed that the redacted line indicates that Jim would be returning to Bangkok as an unregistered agent with the CIA. And those fancy parties he threw every few nights? Potential opportunities for him to eavesdrop on persons of interest. Granted, this part of the story feels the most unbelievable, but it's probably true, which has led some to believe that his 1967 disappearance was an extraction. In fact, former CIA Chief of Disguise, Jonna Mendez, said that the way Jim disappeared matched the method the CIA often uses. Leave the house like you'll only be gone for 30 seconds, then vanish into thin air. The other inexplicable thing about this case? Five months after Jim went missing, his sister in Pennsylvania was killed. She was bludgeoned to death, but there were no signs of assault and nothing was missing from her house. To this day, her murder hasn't been solved, which makes it even harder to accept the truth that the timing was probably just a coincidence. Lou Tolman admits that he can't rule out foul play completely, but he believes that the simplest answer to Jim's disappearance is probably the most likely. As I said, Lou specializes in search and rescue missions, so he has a lot of key information that wasn't wholly available in the 60s. For one thing, the jungle itself was underestimated. The trail Jim probably took is a far cry from the well-trodden paths winding through American National Forest. This one was probably carved out by goats being herded between indigenous villages. It was barely visible and incredibly narrow. What's more, the Cameron Highlands are full of ravines and drainages. You can't see them until you're on top of them, which makes them particularly treacherous. Second, Jim was an adventurer. He actually enjoyed being lost which means that he might have continued to walk, albeit slowly, through the night. When calculating how far he reasonably could have gotten, the search party had to cover 70 square miles of jungle. That's roughly the size of Washington, D.C. And helicopters were of no help because the canopy was so thick they couldn't see the jungle floor. Calculations used by the National Association of Search and Rescue show that after 11 exhaustive days of searching, the party was able to cover around 11 square miles, or roughly 15% of what needed to be searched. And they only swept those areas once. Lou explains that these days, we understand that during the first pass of an area, you have less than two-thirds chance of seeing important clues, let alone a body. A second pass moves the needle a bit more, but it's never at 100%, especially in a hot, sticky jungle. You're miserable, so it's hard to stay at full attention. As you walk, you could look left and completely miss something to your right. It happens. When Lou takes in all these factors, 
He explains that of all the resources needed to comb through the Malaysian highlands, only 3% arrived. 3%. That's staggeringly low, and no shade to the Malaysian government. Like I said, Jim's was the most exhaustive search in Malaysian history at that point. They showed up in a big way. But when you consider the vastness of the jungle and the number of stones left unturned, you realize how likely it is that Jim is still out there, even to this day. At least, that's what Lou Tolman believes. And he added, it's most likely that Jim's body rests within four square miles of the Moonlight Bungalow. You'd think that as time went on, the story of Jim's disappearance would also fade into obscurity, but you'd be wrong. It's become a part of Thai legend, especially since Jim's home is still open to the public for tours of his gallery and residence. In 1997, on the 30th anniversary of the disappearance, news outlets across the world did exposés on the case, rehashing all the old conspiracy theories. Predictably, they didn't get any closer to solving the case. These days, Jim Thompson's home has become a must-see tourist attraction in Bangkok, though visitors say that guides scarcely mention his vanishing act. And actually, I love that. Like I said at the beginning, people who have disappeared are so much more than their absence. Jim deserves to be remembered for a rich and courageous life full of adventure and intrigue. He used his wealth to uplift Thai culture and the people who made Bangkok feel like home. But because he was larger than life, it was impossible for those who knew him to accept the simplest explanation for his disappearance. Conspiracy theories plagued this case, causing a lot of people grief in the process. If today's story proves anything, it's that the best way to honor someone's memory is to celebrate their life instead of immortalizing their absence. If the only thing we know about someone is that they disappeared, we've only erased them further. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Aaron Lan, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.